0: Radical Personal Finance, episode 15. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance podcast. Today's show is going to be about one of my favorite topics, taxes. Well, actually, taxes aren't my favorite topic. My favorite topic is how to avoid taxes. And that's what today's show is going to be about. How to avoid all of your taxes. Stay with us. If you want to know the one thing that's going to make a bigger difference in how much money you have to spend in your life than just about anything else, I would say that that one thing is taxes. And more than anything, how to not pay them. Uh, So today we're going to talk about how to not pay your taxes. Now obviously you have the solution of simply just don't pay them. Uh, but that solution comes with certain other consequences that you may or may not be comfortable with i 'm not comfortable with those uh, consequences so <laughs> that 's up to you and uh, but you, you choose what you want to do with that i 'm not comfortable with those taxes so we 're going to be with that, excuse me with those consequences. So today we are going to be talking about how to avoid the taxes. And this is going to make, I believe, a bigger difference in how much money you have to spend, how much money you have to save, how much money you have to invest than almost any other topic that I can think of to discuss today. So uh, before we get into that, a couple of quick announcements. So super excited. Today is July 8th. Tuesday, and we are live in iTunes. So you will find us live in iTunes now. Just got the approval yesterday. So feel free to go on there and uh, look us up under radicalpersonalfinance. uh, Radical Personal Finance. Subscribe, please. Would love to hear from you if you are enjoying the show. If you're not enjoying the show, that's cool, too. Happy to hear from you if you have that to say. But we are live in iTunes. So now we have the largest directory, and I have also submitted the show to a number of other places. So feel free to not use iTunes if you don't want to use that, but I know that's the 100-pound gorilla in the marketplace, and more people are using that than just about any, anything else. Also, I have our email list set up. So consider, if you're interested in, in the show and you're enjoying the show, please come by the website and consider subscribing to the email list. And here's why. We do a lot of shows. As you know, we do one every single day. And you may or may not be interested in all of the topics that we have here. So I don't expect necessarily expect you to be interested in all the topics. That's fine. But in our email list, you will receive a notification as soon as we publish the show every day. And that notification will contain all of the show notes. Now, I do my best to give good comprehensive show notes, but realistically it takes a long time and so some days it's short and i got to get it done and get it published and some days i can spend a lot of time putting the really nice show notes together however if you would like to get an email that contains all of those show notes none of this dumb you know first three paragraphs then you got to go click over to the site uh, bothers me when people do that i know why i guess you're supposed to have people come into your website so that they can connect with you there but usually a lot of times i get them on my phone and i don't want to go to the website i don't want to click over to safari so i usually just hit uh, hit cancel. So, uh, in my email list, you receive the full show notes each and every day, and then you can decide if it's something that you're interested in listening to, interested in uh, referring to, or interested in just skipping. No problem either way. Uh, so please come by the come by the site at radicalpersonalfinance.com. You'll see right there on the front cu- page, top right, get notified of new episodes. And would love it if you would join our email list. It's only going to be used for sharing uh, the show information and the show notes. Expect it to be a lot of a lot of emails. It's going to be one every day, so uh, five day, you know five days a week. Basically, you'll receive an email, but uh, but I think that'll be the best way for you to keep tabs on what's going on with the show every day. And also, those show notes show notes contain all the links, all the information from the day's show. So, if you'd like to check me out, if you want to fact check me, if you want the outline of the show, that'd be a really good way and convenient for, uh, way for you to do it. Also, appreciate your comments uh, comments on the show. Uh, I really appreciate those. It, it's going to help a lot. And those of you who are listening at this point, you have the opportunity to guide uh, to provide significant input into the direction of the show. I'm creating what's in my mind, the kind of show that I would like to listen to, but you have the opportunity to guide the show. Uh, I'll give you an example of a really great comment I received just uh, last night uh, on the about page over at the show by the username is I guess Freganito. I like Freganism. That's cool. I'd like to talk to someone about freeganism at some point in the future. Uh, but he was just talking about topics of interest to him or her. Uh, it says, you know great to have you back. I think your show has huge potential topics of interest. Hard assets, such as platinum. Is it possible to use an IRA to buy hard assets? Uh, money supply basics, such as inflation. Why uh, Why is inflation, this topic, always presented as a complex topic when it's actually really simple? Why do so many people misunderstand it? Why can a credit card company get such high percentages, but savings account get, accounts get less than 4%? I love those topic ideas. I think that's super fun. Uh, I don't know anything about investing in hard assets, such as platinum. Never done it. Never had any interest in it. Uh, pretty comfortable with the topic of investing in gold and silver but no 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 I have no knowledge whatsoever uh, about something like that but I'd love to know uh, I'd love to know if you guys um, I would love that's the kind of topic that I'd love to interview somebody so my reply back to him was hey do you know anybody who's really good at at a question like that and if you do let me know and I'll try to get in touch with them for an email and I've got it now on my list of excuse me for an interview and I've got that show topic now on my list of potential show topics of things that would be interesting to talk about. And then the, uh, is it possible to use an IRA to buy hard assets? Uh, absolutely. It's actually one of the most researched topics among the, the gold and silver bugs that you find. Uh, the answer is yes, it is possible, and no, I wouldn't do it. Uh, but we'll skip that. We'll save that for another, another day. It doesn't make any sense to me to do it that way, but we'll talk about that another day. So today's show, we're going to talk about tax planning. And so let's jump into the meat and potatoes. I expect today to be pretty deep. I expect to be doing a lot of teaching. I expect this not to be light and easy listening. And don't worry if uh, I think you don't worry if you don't get everything. Feel free to listen to the show a couple times or just figure, you know, you'll pick up what you need to pick up and and we'll we'll revisit these topics again and again in the future. But today I want to lay a foundation for uh, the topic of tax planning. I want to lay a foundation for how it's done and and uh, for how it's done. Uh, Why should you care? Tax planning is vital. A huge, huge, huge portion of our income goes toward taxes in all forms. And there are a lot of taxes that we pay in our society. There are a lot of taxes that, that, we, that we pay. But we have the option, basically, to pay. We have the, really have the option to pay whichever ones we want to pay. They're all optional. And I'll explain that in a second, and I'll prove it to you. Um, they're optional in a way, but they're not optional, optional in a way. And we'll get into kind of how, how that that works. Uh, I've got a few of my favorite quotes Uh, from about taxes i'll sprinkle in here and the first quote is this this from forbes magazine may 11 1992 politicians tax the middle class for the same reason some people rob banks that's where the money is (laughs) so that's what we're going to be talking about hopefully allowing your bank your personal bank not to be robbed uh this is a really big deal. i uh, looked up some numbers this morning from the Tax Foundation, which is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Uh, that collects data and publishes various studies on tax policies. And obviously, as with all think tanks, you've got to figure out, okay, what's the bias? What am I comfortable with? You know, a lot of people don't like them. Some people do. But they—they, they, I like the work they do. And every year they publish what they call the Tax Freedom Day, the National Tax Freedom Day. And the National Tax Freedom Day uh, for 2013 in the United States of America, they estimate to be April 18. So that means the first four months, what, would that be four months and. 13 days or three months and 13 days. Anyway, the first to f- from January 1 to April 18, you spend that entire time working to pay your taxes uh, in, uh, on a national basis. In Florida, where I live, we have it a little bit better because we don't have a state income tax. Uh, it's a little better. Our tax freedom day is April 15. And if you're interested in the actual dates for your, your state, feel free to click in the show notes and you'll see the link to that PDF with all of the data. Uh, you know, On average, Americans now spend more time working to pay their taxes than they spend working to provide food and shelter combined. And that's a pretty startling statistic. Now the problem is, is that that number is, in many ways, very misleading. And the reason is because that number is based upon a per capita average. So basically you can say the, the a per capita average of, of, of tax revenue and uh, taxes paid and divide that among among each person. That's what per capita means. And you then that's where it averages out to. But that's not true. Because uh, taxes are not paid proportionately, that's not we do not have an average tax rate on each person. Where each person, p- we don't have a flat tax where each person say it pays the same percentage of our income, and then the tax base upon which taxes are based uh, uh, for each person varies. And so uh, you find that some people's tax freedom day is literally January one, and some people's tax freedom day would be later than April April eighteen. Uh, taxes are really paid disproportionately by different sectors of society. So depending on what tax system we're talking about, for example, income taxes are primarily paid by rich people. Uh, But payroll taxes are paid by everybody who earns wages. So uh, again, using Heritage Foundation numbers here, uh, according to the most recent 2014 numbers I looked up this morning, from the Heritage Foundation, the top 10% of earners paid 71% of federal income taxes in 2014. Remember that. The top 10% of wage earners paid 71% of federal income taxes in 2014. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the wealthiest 10% of the country paid 71% of federal income taxes. Uh, Federal income taxes are not paid based upon wealth. They're paid based upon income. It only means that the top earners, the top 10% of earners, Paid seventy one percent of federal income taxes. Uh, also, in all of these stati- statistics, anytime you're reading a statistic and it's pointing out, uh, it's pointing out, look at this, look at this, uh, this statistic for th- versus that statistic, and you see uh, people on the political left and on the political right, everyone bandies about their preferred statistics, and all of them are lying with their statistics. A couple things to look for: look at what's being taxed, look at the tax base, look at the tax rates, understand. Look at is your data is it household data. Or is this per capita data? Because household data and per capita data are very, very different, and to, you need to always pay attention to that. Won't go into that in depth at some point, but there are a couple of economists I'd like to interview and bring on at some point to talk about that because that's a very meaningful difference when you're reading statistics. I, I believe tax planning is going to affect, should affect, just about every decision that you make, and uh, usually. People are relatively ignorant about tax planning, and usually people just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, But why should you pay attention to it? Well, first of all, you're going to make more money, and you're going to have more money to spend because smart tax planning can allow you to increase your income and your investment returns by really up to one-third. It's huge. It's huge. It's a huge, huge difference, and that's real money, real spending money that you can spend, real saving money that you can save, real investment money that you can invest I do there are many people argue about investment strategies and investment philosophies, talking about uh, who can be you know who can some can you beat the market, can you generate alpha uh, in your investment portfolio I, I don't really care uh, Ignore that, save that for another day. I do know what you can do is you can do smart planning. And unlike having to be right on an investment h- hunch or an investment idea and having to have that be right, which is probably the more most difficult thing that you can do, you can create a plan where you just simply tax, you invest in a tax-efficient manner. And this will increase your returns in a huge way. Uh, another way it can affect you: Do you want to buy property? Do you want to buy real estate? You know, if you understand your tax deductions for in real estate, for example, your home mortgage interest or your real estate taxes, this will dramatically affect your costs, uh, the costs of buying property, and it will dramatically affect your buy versus rent calculations. It's not the only thing, but given the fact that you can deduct up to one point one million dollars, you can deduct the interest on up to under current tax code on up to one point one million dollars of mortgage and. Indebted- Million bucks for a primary residence, a hundred thousand dollars. Excuse me, million bucks for a primary mor- for primary mortgages and a hundred thousand bucks for home equity mortgages. That is a huge amount of tax savings. That is a huge amount of tax sa- savings if the situation makes sense for you. Now we're not obviously if you're making. Twenty thousand dollars a year, you're not deducting one point one million dollars of uh, worth of interest, uh, or you're not deducting the interest on one point one million dollars worth of indebtedness. But if you have a high income, this may make a substantial difference, and you've really got to consider it. Uh, interest in retirement, you know, you there are, we all are familiar with tax advantaged retirement accounts, IRAs, Roth IRAs, uh, all, SEP IRAs, all four hundred one ks, all of these things. Using these accounts can make a dramatic difference in how much money you need to save for retirement, and a dramatic difference in how much money you have to spend in retirement? Now it's not the only thing. Uh, IRA is not a magic bullet. It, it, you could argue that in some some instances it would be superior. If you had, I will give you an example. If you had a traditional IRA and you had and you just simply put uh, a stock that didn't pay dividends in that in that IRA and you bought one stock within that IRA and you kept it alone for forty years, then you sold it. And you incurred all of the income on that gain, then all of that income would be paid, would be taxed based upon ordinary income rates. Whereas if you had bought the stock outside of an IRA, and you bought the stock, and you didn't sell it for 40 years, it appreciated in value dramatically, didn't pay any dividends, well, then now that capital gains would be taxed at capital gains rates, and there would be a dramatic difference between them. And although I didn't run the uh, calculations again this morning, I had to, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, uh, you would come out ahead not putting that stock inside of the IRA, Um yeah, pretty sure about that. Uh, just double checking it in my head. You would come out ahead not putting that stock in the IRA. Now, granted, that's not how people actually invest generally. Uh, a, as we talked about yesterday, only fifteen percent of the co- uh, the country actually owns stocks. Everyone else owns investment vehicles. The taxation on mutual funds is very different, and so it would be a very different uh, scenario. But if you understood that, you could understand how to structure your how to structure your uh, your planning. Uh, in order to in order to help you have more money over the long term and you would the simplest way is in in that scenario you're usually and uh, uh, what a good financial planner will first talk to you about is usually you'll keep your capital gains investments so your stocks that you're expecting to appreciate in value and not to pay a lot of dividends or at least not to pay any uh, non-qualified dividends you would keep those out of your IRA and you would put your ordinary income property no, namely your bonds inside of your IRA uh, so that's a very basic um, that's a very basic planning technique However, you should be aware that sometimes that's exactly the wrong move. Sometimes you actually do want to accelerate income, and well, that's not going to be covered in today's show, but we will talk about that in the future. What about choosing which job offer to accept? Uh, how about understanding how a company's benefits work? If you have one company that offers you a $100,000 salary and another company that offers you a $70,000 salary but substantial benefits, how would you look through and figure out which one would be in your best interest? It may be that Company A or Company B would be better, depending on how it's, how it's uh, structured. How to save for college. This is a big concern for a lot of parents. How do we save for college? How do we make sure that we do it in a tax-efficient way? And there are a dozen ways to do it. Uh, There are a dozen ways. And everyone says, well, 529 account. 529 account has its place. It's a useful tool. It's not the only tool. And I don't think it's particularly the best tool. It is a tool within an arsenal of financial planning tools. How about when you're giving money away to friends or family or supporting your favorite charities? If you understand the gift tax rules and you understand your uh, deduction rules, you understand your charitable rules, you can wind up with the person that you want to receive the money receiving a substantially higher amount of money than uh, if you don't understand the rules or if you die what about estate planning making sure that your heirs receive a substantially higher amount of money Uh, simple example uh between types of IRAs, traditional IRAs versus Roth IRAs. Let's say that you have two accounts. You have a, a traditional IRA with $100,000 in it and you have a Roth IRA with $100,000 in it. And you're not going to need either the account you're not going to need one of the accounts for for your retirement. You're going to spend one of the accounts and you're going to leave one of the other accounts behind. Well, should you leave the traditional IRA or should you leave the Roth IRA? In general, broad picture, You want to make sure that you spend the traditional IRA and take the money out little by little over the years and leave the Roth IRA as an inheritance. And the reason is because the money in the traditional IRA has never been taxed. And so if you leave it behind... And, uh, and you leave it behind to your family, then your family will immediately inherit $100,000, which will be added to their taxable income. However, the Roth IRA has already been taxed, and my example assumes that you have a relatively low basis in the account. The Roth IRA has already been taxed, so under that scenario, when your family receives the $100,000, they receive it with no income taxes due, uh, assuming they follow the rules of distribution getting it out of the account. What about your business? What organizational form should you choose? Should you open a business as a sole proprietorship? Uh, tax as a sole proprietorship. Should you open a business uh, as a partnership? Uh, tax as a partnership. Should you open a business as an S corporation or a C corporation? Or should you use an LLC and elect to be taxed under one of those tax schemes? Depends. There are advantages and disadvantages to each one. There are things that you can do in a C corporation that you can't do in an S corporation. So, on a C corporation, you would uh, be dealing with the issue of double taxation, where that means the corporation pays tax on its on its profits, and then you pay tax on the dividends that you receive of the profits from the corporation. However, in the C corporation, you could bring in certain types of benefit programs that you can't under an S corporation. So you could establish a non qualified deferred compensation program. You could establish something like a uh, benefit, you, you know, using a long term care insurance uh, program for executives and owners, and uh, front load those those premiums, pay for them, uh, and then the policy goes with the owner when he sells the business. Or again, the non-qualified deferred comp would be wonderful in certain situations. You can't do those with an S corporation. Uh, you can do some of the long-term care insurance premiums, but you can't do non-qualified deferred comp with an S corporation. However, with an S corporation, you don't invoke double taxation. You're only taxed on the money once. So what should you choose? Depends on each situation. But understanding those things is going to help you to make better ideas. Where should the business be located Should you open in the state of Florida or in the state of Georgia or in the state of New York? Uh, what are, uh, w- you know just simply deciding where you're going to open your business or how you're going to make business acquisitions? should you pay for them in cash? should you pay for business acquisitions in stock? How should your employee compensation be structured? Uh, should you raise mo- let's say you need to raise money. Should you raise money by issuing debt bonds? Uh, by selling bonds or by issuing equity and selling stock in your corporation. Different taxation on the bonds versus the equity. So you need to understand those things and, and understand what would be better in your situation. Should the business own business rent property and it's rented as equipment and property, or should they own it? Uh, should you set up different business structures? So should you establish one corporation that owns the property and then lease that to another corporation, or should you uh, do it all in one? Different, different advantages and disadvantages depending on the situation. You know, I'll give you just one interesting one you'll see sometimes, especially with things like medical practices, uh, there's a technique that, that you can use this as part of an income shifting technique that's called a gift lease back. So you'll see this a lot in the medical community or where you have substantial equipment that can be, that can be worked. So let's say that I'm a dentist or I don't know. I guess a dentist will work. Let's say that I'm a dentist and I've purchased an X-ray machine. And so, with this X-ray machine, I've paid a substantial amount of money for it. Uh, The X-ray machine is uh, I'm depreciating year by year in my business, but now I've fully depreciated it. I've reached the end of my depreciation schedule. Well, at that point in time, I can make a gift of that property to potentially, uh, if I do it right and follow the rules, I could make a gift of that property to my children. And now my children own the property, and I can lease the property back from them. So that transfers the lease payments, to the income from the lease payments, it transfers that to my children, allows me to pay them income, but the lease payments on my end in my business are fully deductible lease payments. So it's a small income shifting technique that can be really useful in the right, in the right form. How should the business distribute profits? Each entity has advantages and disadvantages. Should it be wages and salaries? Should it be dividends? Uh, if it's a partnership income, should it be, uh, what's the accounting term? My mind is blanking. Should it be... Um, you CPAs can help me out. I'll look it up later. It's the difference between uh, wages and just guaranteed payments versus the, the partnership equivalent of, of, of uh, dividends. I'm blanking on it. Partnership, <laughs> partnership taxation is my least favorite of it all. Uh, but we'll get, we'll get there someday. So this stuff makes a difference, and hopefully those are some examples that give you an idea. Now, I am not an expert in all of these areas. I am an interested student, and I would love to find some people that could have come on the show and teach in a systematic way about some of these techniques. And uh, my story with it is when I started working, I've always been interested in tax, but I was always interested more in the political side of it, never in the actual practical side. And I remember the first year that I opened... My uh, financial planning practice, and I'm sitting there trying to figure out my taxes, and I—it was, it was another language. It was a, a, an absolute another language, and I'm sure that I missed deductions and missed things that I could have done in those first couple of years. It was really overwhelming to me as far as the amount of uh, of of information that I needed to learn. Uh, you can, uh, you can. Uh, but I didn't know who to turn to. And so I started working with a few CPAs, tried to talk to a couple of accountants. I had one CPA that I really appreciated. He did a really great job for me. And this particular CPA would teach me through, but then he left and I had to try to work with some other ones. And what I found was that many CPAs are knowledgeable, but they don't have the time to sit and teach me everything I need to know about the tax code is that if I'm paying them based upon preparing a return, they have a financial interest in preparing that return at a quick, very quickly and maximizing their hourly compensation. And this is, right this is this is correct this is how it should be and most of them simply don't have the time necessarily to sit down and teach me about it even if i am willing to pay and many times they're not accustomed to people walking in and saying i want to pay you a fee to consult with me now at the high end i think many high-end cpas do but the av- uh, many cpas who are very knowledgeable wind up having to prepare thousands of returns well in that situation you get comfortable and your practice is structured upon doing a lot of returns uh for a, small, for a small fee. And so I just said, I got to learn. I got to learn. So I have a real interest in these things. And I'm still not an expert. I'm not a CPA. Uh, I'm not an enrolled agent, uh, at least not yet. I, that's one I do plan to become in the future because I'm interested in it. But uh, I haven't done these things, so I'm not an expert in it. But I do want to share with you some of what I have learned, kind of big picture. And uh, big picture. So hopefully this will be interesting to you. Today's show is designed to provide a foundation. Uh, Today's show is designed to provide a foundation for future shows on specifics. And this is going to be part of my effort to really get past the... Uh, the fluffy stuff that you often hear, or the, the in financial planning talk uh, you know, talk radio or things like that, or just do it this way. I want to really build an educational platform that says, here's how it works. because once you have this outline in your mind, it makes everything a lot easier. So uh, categories of taxes. If we look and try to figure out well what are, what are the different categories of taxes that that we pay? there There are a lot, and I remember a couple of years ago I went and googled the articles this morning, but there was a big article that made the made the rounds in the blogosphere about you know here and here are a hundred different taxes that you pay just google list of taxes Americans pay and I found a couple on this list of ninety seven taxes Americans pay every year, or I found you know hundred taxes Americans pay every year. The problem is these are designed for these are designed for uh, primarily for um Shock value to talk about the political, uh, the political, the political implications of it. So I'll read uh, here. This was the second article that popped up in the one I googled it this morning. This is from. It's the Economic Collapse Blog, so that should give you an idea of the politics behind this one. A list of 97 taxes Americans pay every year. If you're like most Americans, paying taxes is one of your pet peeves. The deadline to file your—this is from March 24, 2014—the deadline to file your federal taxes is coming up, and this year Americans will spend more than 7 billion hours preparing their taxes and will hand over more than $4 trillion to federal, state, and local governments. Americans will fork over nearly 30% of what they earn to pay their income taxes, but that is only a— Small part of the story. As you'll see below, there are dozens of other taxes that Americans pay every year. Of course, not everyone pays all these taxes, but without a doubt, we are all being taxed into oblivion. It is like death by a thousand paper cuts. Our politicians have become extremely creative in finding ways to extract money from all of us, and most Americans don't even realize what is being done to them. By the time it is all said and done, a significant portion of the population ends up paying more than half of what they earned to the government. That is fundamentally wrong, but nothing will be done about it until people start demanding change. The following is a list of 97 taxes Americans pay every year. I'm going to go ahead and read some of these, but uh, you don't need to write them down or anything. I'm going to organize them in in a way that actually makes sense, unlike these silly lists. Number one, air transportation taxes. Just look at how much you were charged the last time you flew. Number two, biodiesel fuel fuel taxes. Number three, building permits taxes. Number four, business registration fees. Five, capital gains taxes. Six, cigarette taxes court fines, disposal fees, dog license taxes, driver's license fees, employer health insurance mandate tax, employer Medicare taxes, employer social security taxes, environmental fees, estate taxes, excise taxes on comprehensive health insurance plans, federal corporate taxes, federal income taxes, federal unemployment taxes, fishing license taxes, flush taxes. Yes, this actually exists in some areas. Food and beverage license fees, franchise business taxes, garbage taxes, gasoline taxes, gift taxes, gun ownership permits, hazardous material disposal fees, highway access fees, hotel taxes, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you can read the rest of the list. Problem is, I'll give you an example. They have IRA early withdrawal taxes, IRS interest charges, IRS penalties, um, uh, library taxes, license plate fees, liquor taxes. Uh, What annoys me about these lists is that are they true? I guess technically. Uh, Sometimes, let's see, do they double count something on here? Uh, Okay, they put property taxes and real estate taxes. I would combine those two things, Uh, but, but... let that go. They got social security taxes, but they also had on here uh, employer, where was it? Under the E's, employer social security taxes. So that's one tax, but they've got it split into two for dramatic effect. So uh, these lists are fun to read, but just what annoys me is that you can't get past the political bent of it. And so half the audience reads these things and says, yeah, that's exactly right. And half the audience says, that's a stupid list and you know what a ridiculous thing. Instead of both people actually understanding the foundation for these tax systems and how they work and why they work, and then understanding what you can actually do about it. It's hard to have a, a, an actual... Um, debate, if you're basing your debate based upon, you know, a spurious argument uh, about whether tanning taxes should, uh, you know, a new Obamacare tax on tanning services, uh, on what this matters. Is that true? Probably. I would imagine it's true. But, uh, you know, here, the, number 75, state park entrance fees. State park entrance fees are not a tax. That's a fee. Uh, a tax is not something a tax is something for which you don't receive a specific benefit so that's not even in the category of a tax a tax is a payment that's required uh, but in my notes, a payment that is required by a government that is unrelated to any specific benefit or service received from the government. So, if you're making a state park entrance fee, that is a f- that's in response to a service for uh, which allows you the use of the park. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you know arguing about state unemployment taxes, which are a tax. Uh, uh, state unemployment taxes are uh, that's not it that doesn't mean that it's. You, that it's invalid to argue about it, but when you mix those things up, the debate just goes into the ditch. So, here's how I um, here's how I uh, basically um, uh, basically kind of classify taxes. Uh, I just read from my notes here that, uh, uh, where is it in my notes? Uh, a tax is a payment required by a government that is unrelated to any specific benefit or service received from the government. The general purpose of a tax is to fund the operations of the government or to raise revenue. Taxes differ from fines and penalties in that taxes are not intended to punish or prevent illegal behavior. Nonetheless, by allowing deductions from our income, our federal tax system does encourage certain behaviors, like charitable contributions, retirement savings, and research and development. Thus, we can view it as discouraging other legal behavior. For example, sin taxes impose relatively high surcharges on alcohol and tobacco products. The key components of the definition of a tax are that, number one, the payment is required. It is not voluntary. Number two, the payment is imposed by a government agency, federal, state, or local. And number three, the payment is not tied directly to the benefit received by the taxpayer. So that's the foundation and the definition of, uh, of taxes. And so, in general there are a few different there are various categories of uh, various categories of taxes and how i've categorized them is basically into three three major categories federal taxes state and local taxes and implicit taxes and so the and you'll hear what what these uh, what the difference is between these 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 taxes are. So federal taxes are obviously taxes that apply uh, across the nation. So there are lots of taxes that are in place to fund various programs. um, And a lot of this is considered to be programs of national importance. So things like uh, national importance, things like uh, national defense, or, or the interstate highway system, or educational programs, things like that. And the basic categories of federal taxes are income tax, employment taxes, unemployment taxes, excise taxes, and transfer taxes. So the biggest of those, the big one that we all talk a lot about, is income tax. And income tax, it represents about 50% of all the tax revenues that's collected in the United States in 2010. Most of the time, when you're talking about uh, planning for tax planning, usually people are referring to the income tax system. It's important to note that the income tax system is not the only uh, tax planning system that, that you can work under. You need to understand them all because they all matter and each one in different situations is, is going to have uh, each one of them is going to have different impact and different effects in in, in, different, uh, in different planning circumstances. Uh, history of the impact, uh, excuse me, history of the income tax system. So you may have perhaps you've researched this, perhaps not. I find it in, I find some of the facts interesting. But we didn't always have income taxes. Uh, we the Congress originally started the first uh per u s personal income tax in eighteen sixty one to help fund the civil war and so this was intended to be a a short term uh solution to funding the civil war and so it started out as a five as a maximum at a maximum tax rate of five percent and then it expired in eighteen seventy two so from eighteen sixty one to eighteen seventy two for eleven years we had the original income tax system in eighteen ninety two then Congress passed a a, a a new income tax system, um, but again that was pretty controversial at that time, and uh, it was a lot of people fighting it. A lot of people saying, "What well, should not be? It should not should not be." be allowed to happen. But it was actually a very low amount at a very low rate. Uh, in 1895, that, that tax was actually challenged in a court case. And the court case was called Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust Company. And the U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled that the income tax was unconstitutional because direct taxes were prohibited by the Constitution unless the taxes were apportioned across states based upon their populations. And so the, uh, the income tax the second income tax, was ruled to be unconstitutional. Now, this one, if you get into the tax planning world, you'll find that a lot of people say, well, the tax system is unconstitutional. Uh, It was. The Supreme Court found it to be unconstitutional. However, they then made it constitutional. Constitutional. So uh, in July 1909, Congress sent a proposed constitutional amendment to the states to remove any doubt as to whether income taxes were allowed by the Constitution. And in February 1913, the 16th Amendment was ratified. So if anybody tells you the income tax system is unconstitutional, uh, I mean, who knows? I'd love to talk to one of them one time. If you're in that camp, call me. I'll interview you. I'd love to hear kind of how you... Uh, justify that statement, but I promise it's it's constitutional. Read the 16th Amendment. Uh, amendment was passed on a constitutional basis, and now we have an income income tax system. And then Congress then started the Revenue Act of 1913, and the Revenue Act of 1913 had a graduated income tax structure. We're going to talk about tax structures in a moment. Had a graduated income tax structure with a maximum rate of 7%. And ever since then, that's been a major source of tax revenues today, accounting for greater than fifty percent of the government's revenues. Uh, it shows you how sometimes you know in 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 the laws of logic, you have something you call the slippery slope fallacy. And I always struggle with understanding and defining and talking about the slippery slope fallacy, because it seems to me that, yes, there is very clearly a slippery slope fallacy, but yet the idea and the concept of a slippery slope in and of itself doesn't seem to me to be a fallacy. Uh, When you see how when you see how it's been used over the years, and how a tax rate system that started at five percent, and then it was enacted at less—I can't remember the exact rate on the when they originally passed the law in 1892—but uh, then in 1913 it starts with a maximum rate of seven percent, uh, and then today, uh, you know, you've got income taxes is is are 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 taxed to individuals. Uh, corporations estates and trusts and uh, the rates vary across them but basically it comes out to just under 40% is the maximum rate depending if we're talking about the pure income tax uh, and if if we're going to keep be specific in this talk talking about purely federal income taxes the maximum rate right now is just under 40% at the t- at the highest at the highest brackets so this just illustrates a little bit of the history of the of the federal income tax and it's a major source of it's a major source of of funds for the government to operate on but it's not the only fund source of funds so the next category that you have are employment taxes so employment taxes uh, are uh, consist of two different things there would be the old age survivors and disability insurance tax so the OASDI and that we commonly call the social security tax And then the medical health insurance tax, and that's what we commonly call the Medicare tax. Technically, Social Security tax is not the name of it. It's called the old age survivors and disability insurance tax. Uh, And then the Medicare tax is just what we commonly know, although it's medical health insurance. So those two taxes are are the primary employment taxes. Social Security tax pays the monthly retirement, survivor, and disability benefits for the individuals that qualify. And the Medicare tax pays for the medical insurance for, the, for individuals who are elderly or disabled. The tax rates on these taxes, they're based upon wages. Uh, and the tax base currently, uh, let's see, off of the top of my head here, check the IRS numbers because they change every year. The tax rate base currently for 2014 um, for for Social Security taxes, is on the 100, first $113,000 of wages, and then the Medicare tax rate is all wages. And then the, 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 the Social Security tax has two different uh, components to it. You have the employer component, which for the Social Security tax is 6.2%, and then you have the employee contribution, which is another 6.2%. So total up, that becomes 12.4%. The Medicare tax rate is a 1.8% employer contribution and a 1.8% employee contribution under the current rates. So if you total those together, it becomes 15.3% total. Note, a lot of times you'll see this, this uh, false logic proclaimed. Well, there's not that much because the employer pays that additional amount. That additional amount comes out of your wages. Uh, In the past, I don't currently have any employees in any of my businesses, but in the past, when I've had employees and I've paid taxes for them, I would be happy to pay them the additional, what is it, uh, 15.3 divided by 2, so that'd be additional 7.65, the additional 7.65% of income. Uh, I would be happy to do that. That is part of their cost. When you count uh, the cost of an employee, you're not just factoring in their salary. You are factoring in all of the costs associated with that employee, and that includes employment taxes. It also includes other benefits programs. It includes other plans. So just remember that when you get into the political conversations is that those are every bit a cost to the employer, and they need to be factored into it. Those are employment taxes. You also then have unemployment taxes. And you have both federal unemployment taxes and you have state unemployment taxes. The state unemployment taxes vary from state to state. And then the federal government allows a credit based upon those state unemployment taxes. Uh, the tax rate is fairly low. It l- can be low as about 0.8%. Uh, uh, can be even lower, uh, about 0.6%. just depends on the calculations. And then the wage base is the first $7,000 of wages which are received during the year. So you have both unemployment and um, and employment, uh, excuse me, employment taxes and unemployment taxes. Uh, I forgot self employment taxes. So unemployment taxes, the old age survivor disability insurance, and the Medicare health insurance. So social security and Medicare taxes. That work. That system is structured for the. uh, employers, however, there is an equal system that is established called the self-employment tax, and it's exactly the amount. It's fifteen point three percent. Where if you are self-employed, you are responsible to pay for the cost of those uh, for the cost of those uh, taxes under the self-employment tax system. The next group of federal taxes that you have are excise taxes. So excise taxes are taxes that taxes that are put on the retail sale of specific products. So these would be include these products would include alcohol, diesel fuel, gasoline, tobacco products, and then other services like telephones, uh, air transportation, tanning beds. Uh, when you open your cell phone bill, if you ever do, and you look at the obnoxious amount of taxes, those are excise taxes based upon the telephone tax. If you hear about the gasoline tax, the gasoline tax is a federal excise tax which was intended to fund the road programs so when you look at when you understand all those things those all come under the category of excise taxes and then you have the transfer tax system and so the transfer tax system would consist of estate taxes and gift taxes and so you would have gift taxes is 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 any kind of transfer among people who are alive and then estate taxes also called uh, the death tax is is taxes based upon the transfer of property at death And then there's one additional component to the transfer tax system called the generation-skipping transfer tax. And that one is its own obnoxious nightmare, but we'll talk about that at some point when we talk about estate planning. But you have those three taxes together make up the transfer tax system. So transfer taxes are transfers of money from one person to another, and that will all fall either under the gift tax system, the estate tax system, or the generation-skipping transfer taxes. Uh, And we always generally, you'll just find it gift taxes or estate taxes because generation-skipping transfer. For taxes are part of the uh, uh, part of the estate tax system. That's it for federal taxes. It, under those categories, you can place most federal tax, most of the federal tax systems, and kind of categorize them in a way that's more understandable than reading over here where it says number eighty-six on this list, tire taxes, or number eighty-seven where it says tolls, another form of taxation. Not another form of taxation. That is a fee uh, for the use of uh, fee for the use of something, uh, or a traffic fine. That's uh, I'm not sure about traffic fine. I had to think about that. Uh, over on so that's federal taxes. Now we go into state and local taxes, and there are four categories of state and local taxes: uh, income taxes, sales and use taxes. Property taxes and excise taxes. So the difference here is that there are no employment taxes, although there are state unemployment taxes. But we've uh, we've got here first of all income taxes, and so. Uh, this varies dramatically among states. Uh, some states uh, and some local governments as well impose an additional income tax. There are, off the top of my head, I think five or six or seven states who don't. I live in one of them in Florida. And so I live in Florida. We don't have a state income tax system. Uh, and that's wonderful. So you have a lot of people that have a high income that will come to Florida. Uh, when you compare the t- the tax rates of, of earning, let's say you earn million a year, and you compare what the tax rate would be if you earn that in Florida versus if you earn that in California or in New York City, there's a dramatic difference in the income tax system and in the amount of income taxes due on that money. Uh, New York City, uh, if you live in New York City, you have three levels of income taxes. You have federal income taxes, you have New York State income taxes, and you have New York City income taxes. So you've got to look at those income taxes. Now, the argument that would go in the other way for example, in Florida, uh, generally people consider us to have fairly high property taxes. So we'll get to that property taxes in just a second. But uh, the argument goes that well, in California you have low property taxes, taxes, so you have a very high income tax rate, but you have a low property tax rate, and that should make up the difference. Is the is the argument? The only answer to the argument, the only conclusion, is for you to actually look at your actual uh, your actual situation. Uh, the next category of taxes, sales and use taxes. So uh, sales tax. Taxes would be based upon the sale of goods or so and some services, and so the person selling the good or service is responsible for collecting and paying the tax. And so, usually in the state of Florida, I think our sales tax system is six percent in my county. It ranges a little bit among counties, but we have a six percent sales tax. And so, uh, that's the tax base is the total value of the good uh, or the service, and then I pay a, we pay a six percent sales tax on that. Uh, use taxes are intended to be a way of. Leveling the playing field among different jurisdictions on their sales taxes, uh, use taxes are probably the least known and known about <laughs> tax system. But the, most states have have actually have a use tax, and so the idea is, if I go to a state, a neighboring state that doesn't have a sales tax, and I buy the tax under uh, and I buy a product under that system, and then I come to Florida, then I'm supposed to pay a use tax on that 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 that. Um, Product, which is supposed to compensate the state of Florida on the sales taxes that they lost out on. Now, this is probably the most evaded tax. Uh, we'll talk about evasion avoidance in just a moment. But this is the most evaded tax in my in my in my. Opinion. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I don't have any data that I can point to on that. Just simply because people aren't aware of it. But the idea is we want to minimize, discourage people from buying goods out of state, uh, so that they can pay the sales tax in the state. So all of the online shopping that we do when you buy from Amazon, and in the past when they didn't charge sales taxes, that's what all this hullabaloo is about. Uh, but uh, only recently our states, you know, starting to to enforce it. And the key thing is that. It's a lot easier to enforce on a big-ticket item if you go to another state and you buy a car in a state that doesn't have an income tax. When you then register it in your, your state, you're then going to pay the income tax because the car has to be registered. If you're buying a book online from a state that doesn't have an income tax and you're having a ship to your house, are you supposed to report that as a use tax? You are. However, is that practically done? Of course not. Uh, I think most of us are tax evaders under that system. Uh, and again, if, you, if you're if you not aware of your state's use taxes, just look them up Um I've not researched every state but I would bet you that most states have a use tax system. Next category is property taxes. And so there's basically two kinds of property taxes. There's real property taxes and then there are personal property personal property taxes. And these taxes are what are called ad Ad valorem taxes. Uh, my Latin pronunciation is not the best, so correct me on that if you, th- if you know it's better. Ad valorem taxes. That's what you see written on your property tax bill that says the tax base is the fair market value. So as the market value of the property goes up, then the tax base increases, and so thus the amount of taxes that you owe uh, goes up. And uh, so real property would be the land that you own— Buildings, improvements, anything attached to the land, and then personal property is every other type of personal property, and it can be both tangible or intangible. So that may be boats, cars, planes, um, inventory, equipment, furniture. Intangible property could be uh, stocks, bonds, and intellectual property. All of these can be taxed. Can be taxed now. Real property taxes are much more common or much more useful because it's harder to avoid them. Uh, the, the state can send out an inspector. And they can look at, the va- at your home. They can see it from the aerial photo, and they can guess the, the actual uh, value of it. And so they're a lot easier to enforce than our personal property taxes. Uh, but there are indeed personal property taxes, and this t- changes based upon the state. And then there's also state excise taxes, so same as the federal tax system. States will often p- impose excise taxes on, uh, you know, on gas, on alcohol, on, on, on tobacco, on telephones, things like that. So that would be their own system of state excise taxes, and that's why the, the price you pay for a pack of cigarettes in New York City is dramatically different than the price uh, you pay for a pack of cigarettes in Valdosta, Georgia. Uh, so that would be fall under the excise taxes. Then the third major category of taxes would be implicit taxes. Now, most people don't think about implicit taxes. Uh, the first two categories are all explicit taxes, which means there's a direct tax and we can easily draw the number for it. An implicit tax, however, is something that's not paid directly to the government. And this is the result from a tax advantage the government grants to a certain transaction to satisfy their own their own. Uh, their own objectives. So uh, an implicit tax is defined as the reduced before tax return that a tax favored asset produces because of its tax advantage status. And so, uh, the, let's talk. The, the, the biggest example here is municipal bonds. And so, under a municipal bond system, most people, the first thing you say, hey, I don't want to pay so many taxes on my investments, what's the answer? Buy municipal bonds because municipal bonds are not taxed at the federal level. And so, if you are an investor purchasing municipal bonds, depending on the type and the jurisdiction, you can avoid the taxes based upon those municipal bonds. However, because the taxes are lower, that increases the demand for the municipal bond. And because the demand is higher, that then drives down the price. And so because that drives down the price, then the government can reap a benefit from selling the tax-exempt bonds. So if, this, if, 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 if my state were going to issue a bond and they were going to charge, let's say that it were they were going to charge a specific interest rate and they had to sell the bond uh, at a certain price based upon a certain interest rate and they could collect a certain num- amount of 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 income tax on that, uh, or if they could just sell it without any income taxes, the, the cost savings that they would let's say that let's say they're going to sell a ten thousand dollar bond and they're going to tax it at uh, and it would, if a taxable bond is going to be ten percent, then there would be a, 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 if if the tax rate is um, uh, if the tax rate is twenty percent, then there would be income taxes due of two hundred dollars on that, and then the investor would receive an after tax income of eight hundred dollars. But if we were going to st- sell a state a municipal bond that was tax-exempt, then the market price of that bond uh, could be sold for less. And so it would, could be sold with a lower tax return. And so even though the income was lower, uh, we would wind up ha- having the tax advantage. I'm struggling with how to explain this. This is one of those things where it's better to read a book. But uh, basically, the difference is the cost savings, and that's the implicit taxes. So there, are the, there is a tax burden on the investor. Uh, The tax burden on the investor is either to pay the explicit income tax on the bond or to pay the higher price that the investor pays to get the tax-exempt bond. And that's called an implicit tax. happens every single day. Uh, It happens uh, all day, every day. But it's hard to estimate because then you get into the system of supply and demand and you're trying to figure out how on earth do you estimate these numbers. So hopefully that gives you a good overview of the tax systems and how it works. So let's get to how to avoid them. So I maintain that all taxes are optional. And, and all is a strong word. Most, Let me rephrase it. Most taxes are optional. You can avoid almost, almost all of them. So, but you have to be willing to take the actions that, are, that, that you can take to, to avoid them. Very simply, if you make under a, a certain amount of money, you pay no federal income taxes and you pay no state income taxes. Now, are you willing to make that small amount of money? Depends on your situation and whether or not you're willing to make that small amount of money is going to depend. It's going to be up to you. But uh, all taxes are avoidable, but they may not all be avoidable at the same time. If you don't want to pay so many gasoline taxes, you may be able to avoid the gasoline taxes by buying an electric car. But now you're going to pay the taxes that are charged based upon your electric bill, unless you can set up a solar system that's going to charge your electric car. Well, now you're going to pay sales taxes on the cost and the acquisition of those solar panels, unless you buy them in a state where you don't have to pay sales taxes. But then the company then is still paying the taxes on the profit, and so there is. Still a contribution to the sales tax system or to the tax system, but you can, or to the tax systems, I should say, probably a better way, but you can indeed minimize your contributions to those systems based upon your actions. I'm going to read to you two paragraphs, three paragraphs, out of one of my favorite tax planning books that I really recommend. And the author's name is Jeff Schnepper. And this book is called How to Pay Zero Taxes. Uh, and when I found this book several years ago, I strongly, uh, highly recommend it to you. I will try to remember to put a link in the show notes. Uh, I'll put an affiliate link, so if you want to use that uh, buy it off of Amazon, I'll get, um, I guess, a small commission off of that. Uh, I don't know what that rate is, but uh, that would be much appreciated. But I'll read two, uh, I'll read three paragraphs from page twenty-six of his, what is this, his two thousand and thirteen edition, and this to me are staggering statistics, and I find it really interesting uh, to read through these three, three these three paragraphs. Taxes have been likened to a plague of locusts on a field of wheat. Yet there are several individuals earning millions of dollars who pay little or no taxes, and many more who earn hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, whose tax bill is just as small. For the year 1998, filed in 1999, 2,085,211 individual tax returns were filed, showing income of $200,000 or more. Of those, 0.07%, or about 1,467 returns, showed no U.S. tax liability. For 1999, filed in 2000, 1,605 returns with incomes of $200,000 or more showed no U.S. tax liability. For 2000, filed in 2001, 2,328 returns with income of $200,000 or more showed no U.S. tax. And 2001 returns filed in 2002 without a tax liability increased to 2,959. I'm going to skip through a couple, uh, and let's go to 2009. In 2009, 1,470 people earned over $1 million and paid zero taxes, and 20,752 taxpayers with incomes of $200,000 or more paid zero taxes. These people are able to avoid paying taxes by the use of sophisticated tax strategies devised by high-priced and very professional tax planners who guide their clients along the cracks in the federal tax code. Most of those cracks have been put there intentionally by Congress as economic and social incentives. For example, to encourage capital spending and to support the U.S. auto industry, a combination of provisions in the tax code allows a knowledgeable average taxpayer to buy a $12,000 car at a net cash cost of only $6,641. See page 316. If that car is run only 60,000 miles in its first five years, the net cash outlay for the car can be reduced to below zero. In effect, the taxpayer gets a free car. More important, his costless acquisition is completely legal. Exactly how to do this will be explained later in the book. As the examples indicate, Congress has created a financial mechanism whereby certain actions substitute for tax payments— Rather than taking the taxpayers' money in taxes and then paying it out in direct support for certain activities, Congress has indirectly accomplished the same goal by granting taxpayers some credits and deductions if they make expenditures in certain defined areas. How to Pay Zero Taxes will expose these areas in detail how you, a now enlightened reader, can structure your transactions to benefit optimally from these completely legal strategies and techniques. When I read those numbers several years ago when I first got my hands on that book, I just I couldn't believe it. Uh, 2009, 20,000 people made $200,000 or more and paid no income taxes. And what was it? Over 1,000 people uh, made a $1 million or more and paid no, no income taxes. I thought that was incredible uh, and amazing. Yeah, it was 1,470 people earned over a million dollars and paid zero taxes. Now, I still don't know how to do it with a million bucks. And the thing is that you will learn is is people are looking for simple solutions. There aren't simple solutions. Uh, It is a combination of things, one upon the other, one upon the other, one upon the other. And I do not know of any way to transmit this knowledge to everybody except to say I wish that there were uh, CPAs who specialized in nothing, did no returns, but just simply did. Tax planning practices and people consulting them. I am working to get towards that level of knowledge myself. I've got a good bit of knowledge, but I'm certainly not there. Uh, but mo- all of this is based upon tax avoidance. So let's talk about the difference between tax avoidance and uh, tax evasion. And so, tax avoidance is simply choosing to align your activities in such a way that you avoid taxes. You can choose to drive on the federal uh, interstate highway system instead of on the local turnpike in order to inv- to avoid the fee of the turnpike. You can choose not to drive a car and rather to ride a bicycle and so in order to avoid the fees on the gas t- the, the, the gas taxes. That's tax avoidance. Tax evasion would be basically if you're driving on the turnpike and, you, and you, when you get to the toll booth, you drive around in the median uh, in order to not go through the toll booth. That would be tax evasion. Tax evasion is illegal. Tax avoidance is absolutely legal. Uh, and that is what everyone should be doing. Now, I have a soft spot in my heart. There are people who actually do and are so committed to what they do that they're willing to consider tax evasion. However, there are consequences associated with that uh, and consequences including prison And you would have to be okay with that. Uh, I'm not okay with that for me personally, but I do encourage uh, tax avoidance. But then you get into the problem of ethics. So the question is this. Is it ethical to avoid taxes? Let me read you a couple quotes, and I'll just talk to you how I think about this and you consider, it, uh, you consider it for yourself. Here are some, uh, three of my favorite quotes, and I first read these in uh, Jeff Schnepper's How to Pay Zero Taxes books, book, and uh, I, again, I, I strongly commend that book to you as an excellent, as an excellent re- resource for you. Quote, As a citizen, you have an obligation to the country's tax system, but you also have an obligation to yourself to know your rights under the law and possible tax deductions and to claim every one of them. Donald Alexander, former commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service under three presidents. Quote, as to the astuteness of taxpayers in ordering their affairs so as to minimize taxes, it has been said that the very meaning of a line in the, in the law is that you intentionally may go as close to it as you can if you do not pass it. From a uh, court case, Superior Oil Company versus Mississippi, uh, and other references in the short note, in the uh, show notes. Quote, this is because nobody owes any public duty to pay more than the law demands. Taxes are enforced exactions, not voluntary contributions. J. Frankfurter, Atlantic Coast Line v. Phillips, another court case. And then here, quote, when, m- when men get in the habit of helping themselves to the property of others, they cannot easily be cured of it. The history of our tax code, in economics terms, mirrors the course of most addictions: advancing dependence, diminished returns, and deteriorating health of the afflicted. A 1909 editorial opposing the very first income tax, and as we know, that wasn't the very first income tax. It was actually opposing the uh, redone income tax. So, what about what about the ethics? Well, this is going to be a very intensely personal. Uh, personal situation. Uh, I will tell you this. <laughs> I, it's not my mission in life, but one of my missions of the show is to help people avoid millions and millions of dollars in taxes. I do not particularly like what the tax revenue is spent on. Uh, I don't particularly think that most of it is very good. Uh, I would generally oppose most of it, although we could have a discussion about that. I have no idea what the policy solutions are for this country in general, but I do know that regardless of any policy deci- decisions on the macro scale, that's not my job, It's not my problem, but I do know that regardless of any of the policy decisions on the macro scale, as individuals, we can all order our lives in such a way that we gain the maximum benefit from what we're doing. And one of those things is avoiding taxes. Now, I, people talk about tax loopholes for the rich. This really bothers me. I cannot find any tax loopholes for the rich. I can't find a section in the tax code that says rich people are allowed to use this and poor people aren't. If anything, all of the tax loopholes that exist in the tax code are for the poor. So you can make not much money and you don't, get to pay, you don't have to pay any taxes. But if you're rich and you make a lot of money, you're going to be paying some taxes. There are no tax loopholes for the rich. There is one tax code and it is equally applied to both the rich and the poor. Now, the advantage and the disadvantage is that generally rich people usually get to be rich because they do things that rich people do. They save money, they invest money, and they pay for good advice. And poor people usually get to be poor in this country, not in other countries around the world. It's a separate topic. But in the United States of America, poor people usually get to be poor by doing things that poor people do. And often that's spending money frivolously, not saving it, and not getting good advice. All of the information is there in the library. So if you're interested in this stuff, get a library card and go read the book on how to save money on taxes. There are dozens of books that are published every single year. You can get them all for free from the library and read them. Now, are there systematic structural problems? Probably, and that's our job is to help our neighbors save on taxes, and that's why I'm doing this. This podcast is 100% free, and you go listen to it, and I hope you save a lot of money on taxes. But there are no tax loopholes for the rich. There is a one-tax code, and it is applied equally across all citizens. I feel better. <laughs> this just bothers me so much because the problem is lack of education. And so, yes, as a rich person, if I'm going to pay a million dollars of income taxes in a year, it's worth it to me to consider hiring somebody and paying them $100,000 if they can figure out how to help me save that million dollars. And this is what drives me nuts about uh, about political code is that if if you enact a new law, the people that can afford to pay for someone to read through the law to find the way to the exception, they're going to do it. So I, I've my, the entire job in general of a financial planner is to help people do smart stuff, and I have a job because the tax code is so complicated in a sense. And so there's always exceptions and there was ways to do it, but they aren't simple. There are a few some simple things, but they are not simple. So uh, I'll leave that I'll leave that there. But that one is, uh, you can ascribe that quote to me. There are no tax loopholes for the rich. There is one tax code and it's applied equally across the board to all citizens, whether or not they are rich or they are poor. Just like there's not, (laughs) you get the point. Moving on. A couple of ideas here, and let's talk about the structure of taxes, and uh, then I think we'll wrap up for the day. And we will continue. This will be part one of a many-part series. But first of all, we need to understand some tax terms, and if you understand these tax terms and some tax strategies, these tax terms are going to uh, are going to make a, a big difference uh, to you. Oh, forgot. Excuse me. Before I do that, I want to read one more quote from this "How to Pay Zero Taxes" book, and this is coming from page thirty. And I think that this uh, helps to answer uh, some of that ethical ob- uh, objections. I apologize. This is, this is a- too important for me not to read. And so the thing to recognize when you get into discussions about tax policy and people talk about well, what's fair and what's not fair – The remarkable thing I used to say prior to when I had studied any of this stuff in depth, I used to say, well, the tax code is not fair. It doesn't make sense. I have since learned that the tax code is extremely fair and does make sense. The ideas behind the taxes, the tax system and the tax code, the ideas are generally applied equally across the board. And so I would encourage you to that as I've studied things, you find that if you have a tax principle in one place, you'll find it applied everywhere. You'll find that it's applied in exactly the same way way across the board. So partnership taxation is structured in such a way that it is very that it is uh, trying to be the equivalent of corporate corporate taxation. And the the kind of the philosophy behind it are indeed the philosophies are indeed consistent across the board. Uh, but I want to read this talking about how, why tax expenditures exist, and because people often ask, well, "Why does the uh, Why does the uh, the IRS Why does the government allow you to have a retirement plan and uh, and save the money on the taxes by using an IRA as a retirement plan?" Well, the the doctrines are consistent. In general, what you'll find is that the government is trying to incentivize people or disincentivize people to do certain things. And the primary tool that the politicians have to incentivize what they think is in your best interest is is through the tax code. So we're going to read here from page 30 of How to Pay Zero Taxes. Uh, I think Mr. Schnepper does an awesome job uh, with this section here. Time is money, and these dollars, come, uh, tax dollars come out of your pocket and drain your ability to save and invest, while inflation compounds your financial concerns by draining your ability just to keep even. Even if your earnings can keep even with inflation, you still lose. For example, assume you have a taxable income for 2012 of $85,650 and pay $17,442.50 in taxes. You have $68,207.50 left to spend. With both inflation and a raise of 8%, you will now earn $92,502 and pay $19,361 in taxes, leaving you $73,141 to spend. But due to inflation, this $73,141 is worth only $67,290. In real dollars, the progressive nature of your tax structure and the purchasing power decay caused by inflation— have together decreased your real buying power by sixty eight thousand two hundred and seven dollars and fifty cents minus minus excuse me minus sixty seven thousand two hundred and ninety dollars equals nine hundred and seventeen dollars on a six thousand eight hundred and fifty two dollar increase in earnings. So um, the impact of state and Social Security taxes further magnifies your financial dilemma. So let me just clarify that because it's hard to listen to numbers when you're listening to auto. Uh, Taxable income in 2012 was $85,650, and you were left with $68,207 to spend. Taxable income the next year was $92,502, but after taxes and inflation, you were left with $67,290 to spend. So what happened is that your raise increased only by ni- your, 60- your $6,800 raise, increased your actual spending money by only $917. Excuse me. Uh, let me look at these numbers here. All right, sorry. Uh, numbers are hard, obviously, to, to extract in audio. You wound up with $917 less to spend after receiving a $6,852 increase in earnings. I'm going to pause in this quote for a minute, uh, in in this excerpt for a moment. This is why you have to consider all aspects of financial planning. More money is not always better. It may be, let's say that you have a job that is fairly simple, fairly easy, and keeps you with a certain amount of time. It may be that in order to earn more money, you then have to take a job that is fairly complicated, fairly stressful, and takes a lot more time. You need to really consider all of the impact of that, and it's possible that you'd be better off to take the higher job, and it's also possible that you'd be better off to avoid the higher job and simply choose to maximize your free time. This is good, sound, personal financial planning, but you need to actually know and run the calculations to be able to do this. Now, obviously, this is an example that the author has chosen to prove his point, but it does prove his point. The person had a $7,000 raise and had $900 less money to spend after inflation and taxes. So if you can have something where you have, instead of taking the $7,000 raise, you take more free time, you wind up with the same spending money and more free time. So consider it. And that's why good personal financial planning makes all the difference in the world. Continuing reading here. What can you do? One simple answer is to try to reduce your taxes. And the rest of this book will tell you how to do so. Some of the techniques found in this book are the result of mixing complicated and convoluted tax code sections. But all of them are completely legal. Some are legal not because Congress intended them to be there, but because both Congress and the Internal Revenue Service were lax in their homework, and the tax code language allowing them is there. Uh, int- uh, my comments. It's not my problem that Congress and the IRS can't, um, can't talk together. While Congress writes the tax law, that law is read and interpreted by the courts. Quite often, the Internal Revenue Service and the courts differ in their interpretations of various code sections and their applications. The courts always win. Even if a tax effect is contrary to original congressional intent, the courts must and do support the language of the code. Such effects are the law and can can be changed or eliminated only by congressional action. Until such action is taken, it is fully within the legal rights of the American taxpayer to use such code combinations to reduce, minimize, or even completely eliminate taxes." Each individual must pay taxes, but not one penny more than the law requires. If you want to make voluntary contributions to our federal treasury, you will have bought the wrong book. On the other hand, most of the techniques detailed here have been intended by Congress. In many cases, legally reducing your income tax liability is both good for you and good for America. Certain kinds of receipts are intentionally excluded from gross income for tax purposes in order to achieve some economic or social objective. These provisions are frequently referred to as tax incentives and are specially, specifically designed to encourage certain types of activity. Tax incentives have the same impact on the federal budget as direct expenditures because they represent revenues not collected by the federal government. These special tax provisions, therefore, have been labeled tax expenditures or tax aids by the Treasury Department. These expenditures are revenue losses arising from provisions of the tax code, but give special or selective tax relief to certain groups of taxpayers. These provisions either encourage some desired activity or provide special aid to certain taxpayers. For example, the federal government seeks to encourage certain forms of investment. Thus, business investment is encouraged by the accelerated rather than straight-line depreciation. This tax advantage has been legislated so that businesses will have additional capital to be able to expand. tax advantage investment helps create new businesses and new jobs. These new jobs produce more paychecks, and these additional paychecks produce more taxes. In the long run, if everything works as it should, everyone wins. Alternatively, other tax expenditure provisions have been adopted as relief provisions to ease tax hardships or to simplify tax computations. For example, the elderly and the blind receive special financial benefits through a deduction called the additional amount. The other tax benefits for the aged, the retirement income credit, and the potential exclusion of Social Security annuity payments from taxable income also fall into this personal or tax hardship category. These revenue losses are called tax expenditures because they are payments or expenditures by the federal government. This is a form of implicit taxes, taxes. Payments or expenditures by the federal government made through a reduction of taxes rather than a direct grant. Justice of forgiveness of debt is equivalent to a payment. So a remission of tax liability is equivalent to an expenditure. According to the Congressional Budget Office, in 1980, a total of 92 provisions were considered tax expenditures. These were estimated to cost $206 billion in fiscal year 1981, based on laws in effect at the start of 1980. Projected 2012 individual tax expenditures are almost $1.3 trillion. The financial benefits offered by, a tax, by tax expenditure provisions resemble those available through entitlement programs on the spending side of the budget. A tax expenditure provision can provide special tax relief in any of the following ways. 1. Special exclusions, exemptions, and deductions, which reduce taxable income and thus result in a smaller tax liability. For example, tax-exempt municipal bond interest or the exclusion from taxable income of employer discounts or dependent care assistant programs. 2. Preferential rates, which reduce liabilities by applying lower rates to all or part of the taxpayer's income. For example, the special reduced maximum tax rate on long-term capital gains income. Three, special credits, which are subtracted from the tax liability rather than from the income on which the taxes are figured. For example, the child tax credit or the foreign tax credit. 4. Deferrals of tax which generally result from allowing deductions that, according to standard accounting principles, are properly attributable to a future year. For example, accelerated depreciation allowances. The taxpayer, paying later rather than now, in effect receives an interest-free loan of the deferred liability. Tax spending and direct spending are alternative methods of providing federal subsidies. Nearly any tax expenditure could be recast as a spending program, just as most spending programs could be replaced by tax expenditures. Thus, the choice between tax spending and direct spending is essentially a choice between alternative administrative mechanisms. Dropping down the page here and two more quick paragraphs. In reality, though, many of these expenditures are the result of pressures applied by special interest groups seeking relief provisions for their own constituencies. For example, why is there an additional standard deduction amount for the blind and not for the deaf? The answer, I suggest, may have more to do with the political and lobbying power of the two groups than with any inherent difference between the hardships. These special provisions also arise out of the political needs of our individual representatives in Congress. These are off-budget expenditures that show up as a reduction of revenues rather than as an increase in congressional spending. In effect, they allow our representatives to increase our federal fiscal deficit to spend more tax money without appearing to do so. Arguments are made that these tax incentives are simple and involve far less government supervision and detail than strict expenditures. It has also been argued that these incentives encourage the private sector to participate in social programs and promote private decision-making rather than government-centered decision-making. Whether these asserted virtues of tax incentives incentives are in fact valid or whether their defects outweigh their claimed advantages is not the subject of this book. The fact that they do exist is critical. In order to minimize or eliminate your taxes completely, you must first accept the fact that the techniques to be detailed in this book are both legal and, for the most part, specifically intended by Congress. That they have not been publicized or made widely known by the Internal Revenue Service is not surprising. Despite publicity releases and continuous claims to the contrary, the Internal Revenue Service is a revenue collector. While the professed goal is a fair administration of the tax law, the service's job is to collect your tax money. No Internal Revenue agent ever received or ever shall receive a raise or promotion by suggesting to a taxpayer how to arrange a financial situation to reduce or eliminate taxes. To discover those techniques, you either have to pay thousands of dollars to a professional tax practitioner, attorney, or accountant, or you can turn to the next chapter. So with that, that's all I'm going to read from this book here. Uh, I think that's a good enough start. And again, I highly recommend uh, Jeff Jeff Schnepper's book. It's really, really excellent. And uh, one thing that I want to point out, and I'm going to wrap up with uh, two more quick comments on Some explanations of different options uh, for for taxes, but two more quick comments. Uh, Well, first of all, this book was what's the cover price? Twenty bucks. Twenty dollars at the bookstore could save thousands and thousands of dollars. And he does a good job. Although it's a little hard if you don't have some uh, some background of uh, he does a really good job in this book, but if you don't have some background on how the tax code is designed, then it's it's a little hard to digest. But twenty bucks at the at the bookstore can save you untold thousands of dollars. So the answers to how to get rich are usually simple, but they're usually found in education. And this would be a good example. So make note of that. But the point is that all of these techniques are intended by Congress, uh, either explicitly or, in, or implicitly. They are intended by Congress. And just because of the fact that you don't know about them doesn't mean that they shouldn't exist or that they don't exist. The key is going out and understanding them. But the problem with tax planning is, and even the problem with financial planning, I as a financial planner, I can't tell you what I can do for you. Uh, until I actually know your situation. Because if you just the difference of if you own a business or if you're an employee, that makes a huge difference in the options that are available to, to you. So until I actually know a situation, I can't tell what, what, what uh, uh, planning techniques I can use or what I can find. And this is actually the problem that we as financial planners struggle with in marketing. People say, well, what can you do? Well, I don't know uh, because I don't know your situation and everything is so dependent. In essence, the, uh, the job of a financial planner as you basically just have to absorb thousands and thousands of pages of laws and rules and ideas, and then be a good listener to try to figure out where they apply in a specific in a specific situation. So, uh, so, uh, but I encourage you to go out and get the education. Uh, three quick last uh, bullet points in my notes, and we're done for the day. Number one, there are different ways. Uh, well, first of all, you need to understand how taxes are calculated. Uh, a tax, the tax that's paid is equal to the tax base times the tax rate. And this is important that you understand because one of your opportunities is usually to try to adjust the tax base and or to adjust the tax rate. So the tax base is what is defined as what is actually taxed. And this would usually be expressed in monetary terms. So for example, Social Security wages are based upon a tax base, excuse me, Social Security taxes are based upon your tax base of the first hundred and thirteen thousand, I guess, hundred thirteen thousand five hundred dollars of income, if memory is correct. Uh, so that's your social security wage base. That's the tax base. All income over the hundred and thirteen thousand dollars is not taxed uh, based upon social security taxes, but it's only taxed. The tax base for social security is wages. It's not profits. And it's not, uh, so it's not taxed on dividends, uh, and it's not the Social Security wage base is not on interest. So you could earn a million dollars of income from profit, a million dollars of dividends, and none of that would be subject to the Social Security taxes. Uh, ha- or you could earn a hundred thousand dollars of wages, and all of it is subject to Social Security taxes. Or you could earn a million dollars of wages and only $113,500 of it is subject to the Social Security wage base. So this is important to understand. What is the wage base for the tax that we're trying to avoid? Or excuse me, what is the tax base for the the tax we're trying to avoid? And if we're trying to do good Social Security planning, we're basically trying to minimize the tax base, which is wages upon which Social Security will be uh, charged. And so this would be one of the most fundamental. Every accountant uh, will talk to you about this. If you are earning income based as a sole proprietorship versus earning income as an S-corporation, almost every accountant I've ever spoken to, their first thing will be to encourage you to consider filing wages as an S-corporation. Because if you have $100,000 of self-employment income, all $100,000 of that is subject to the self-employment tax at 15.3%, which is a combination of the Social Security tax and the Medicare tax, uh, totaling 15.3%. But, if you are an S-corporation owner, and let's say that the average wage in your industry is $50,000. So you can pay yourself $50,000 of wages. And let's say then that your average uh, that you can then pay $50,000 of profits in the form of a dividend. You will avoid the taxes, the Social Security taxes, uh, on $50,000 of your income. So by understanding what the tax base is, it makes that planning technique make sense. So, a tax is equal to the tax due is equal to the tax base times the tax rate. The tax rate determines the level of taxes that are imposed on the tax base, and this is usually expressed as a percentage. So in Florida, we have a sales tax, and this is a 6% sales tax. So if I buy a $100 item at the store, then I'll pay $6 of taxes on that uh, on that item. But the key is to important to understand what is the actual tax rate. And there are three different tax rates that, are, uh, that, that, we, that we use, and there's three different tax rate structures. So the three different uh, ways that we measure tax rate, the first is what's called the marginal tax rate. And so the marginal tax rate is the tax rate that applies to the next additional increment of a taxpayer's taxable income. And so this is most easily understood under the under the under income tax planning. If you earn a hundred thousand dollars of income, you have a certain uh, you have a certain uh, tax rate that's on that. But then, if you increase that income by twenty thousand dollars, w- you would calculate what is the specific. Tax rate, the marginal tax rate on the next twenty thousand dollars, and uh, I guess I should use an actual um, I should use an actual number from the chart. So if the in the if the uh, federal married filing jointly tax tables, uh, if your taxable income is over what's this one here that I have is over one hundred forty two thousand seven hundred dollars, then you look at the table and you owe twenty seven thousand seven hundred thirty five dollars plus twenty eight percent of the money that's over the $142,700 number. And so that's how you calculate the tax rates. So you have your marginal rate that comes in of, of based upon the additional income. Now, here's the problem. Uh, one of the biggest... Uh, problems you hear in tax planning. Many taxpayers believe that all of their income is taxed at the marginal rate. And so this makes people say, well, you know, I I don't want to earn, I'm earning currently $142,699, but I don't want to earn another $2 because then that would push all of my income up from the 25% bracket into the 28% bracket. That's not true. So just because you earn two more dollars, you don't push all of your income up into the additional bracket. It's just simply that the additional income above that number is now taxed at 28%. Or if you could trim some income off of that, you save off the 28%. Um, savings. Both of them are important. So uh, the marginal bracket, the marginal. You can't just say, "Well, what bracket are you in?" Someone says, "I'm in the 28% bracket." You can't then automatically say, "Well, you earned $142,000, so I'll take 28% of that." It doesn't work that way. It's that the brackets go up, and it, the, the the higher bracket is only charged on the higher amount. Now, this is really useful um, in tax planning because uh, it, because all the savings come off the top. So let's say that somebody is in the thirty-five percent bracket, and we can arrange a plan that's going to drop their income. Well, let's that would be a little. Let's keep it more believable, uh, or let's keep it more mainstream instead of going up to the thirty-five percent bracket. You need to be earning four four or five hundred thousand dollars to be in the thirty-five percent bracket. So let's just say. We're going to do something between the 25% th- th- uh, bracket and the, and the 15% bracket. And so the difference here is it's is, is from seventy to $140,000. So if somebody is making $100,000 and we can defer uh, $30,000 into retirement plans, we can avoid the taxes on that $30,000. And all of that money would have been taxed at 25%. So that can be a substantial savings when you're in that additional when you're in that higher bracket. And so, because all of the marginal brackets are at the at, at the margin, that's why they're called <laughs> that's why they're called marginal. Uh, then you have a lot of opportunities uh, for doing savings there. So that's the marginal tax rate. The next number that we talk about is the average tax rate. So the average tax rate represents the taxpayer's average level of taxation on each dollar of taxable income. And so this would be the average tax rate would equal the total tax divided by the taxable income. And so you can look at this one on your return. Uh, I think it's line 62 divided. I don't remember the exact lines off the 1040 right now, Uh, and I don't want to look it up. But if you just look at the line that says total income and you look at the line that says total tax and you divide that, that becomes your effective tax rate. Here's my plea to you. Every single year, please calculate your effective tax rate. Uh, As a financial planner, I always ask people what their effective tax rate is, and nobody knows. Number one, your effective tax rate is not your marginal tax rate, but you need to track that number. You need to track effectively what percentage of my income is being taxed. And this is a very important number because it will will calculate for you the, the, the ratio of the total tax paid Compared to the taxable and the non-taxable income, and so uh, you want to make sure that you really understand what the the uh, I got confused. That went on to the effective tax rate. Um, calculate your average tax rate, and then calculate your effective tax rate, which is your the uh, which is the average rate of taxation on each dollar of total income. Uh, And that includes both taxable and non-taxable income. We'll talk through that in another show, what kind of income is taxable and what kind of income is non-taxable. In essence, what you need to know is that any economic benefit that you received is basically classified as income, but there are some types of income that are specifically excluded and and becomes non-taxable income. But you want to calculate what your effective tax rate is. And this is the number that one of the major numbers that you should, be, you should be calculating each year to see. How good of a job am I doing? How good of a job is my accountant or my attorney or my financial planner doing? You want to understand these numbers so that you can understand kind of what's working year to year and you can see the changes in your actual situation. So that's your marginal tax rate, your effective tax rate, and your average tax rate. And I'm sorry, I... I um, went through them uh, in order. I was looking at my notes and I got out of order. So marginal tax rate, what additional bracket are we going into? Average tax rate is the average level of taxation on each dollar of taxable income, and then the effective tax rate is taxation on each dollar of total income. And the most useful of those is actually going to be your effective rate uh, followed by your marginal rate, because we can save a lot of money on those things. Uh, Then finally, or two two more things, tax rate structures. There are three basic ways that tax rates are structured. They can be structured as a proportional tax rate structure, as a progressive tax rate structure or as a regressive tax rate structure. So a proportional tax rate structure would be known as a flat tax. And so this would be a constant tax rate, which is applied throughout the tax base. So um, the best example of this would be a sales tax. If you buy $100 in Florida, if you have a 6% sales tax, if you buy $100 of goods, you will pay a $6 six dollars in sales taxes. If you buy $1,000 of goods, you'll pay a 6% of that, $60 of sales taxes. And if you buy $100,000 of goods, you'll pay, what is that, uh, $6,000 of sales taxes. So that would be an example of a flat tax rate. Uh that's not how the income tax system works, although there have been proposals for that. There's lots of proposals. There's a, a lobbying group that I think they call the flare, fair tax, and basically their idea is to impose a national sales tax, and that would be a type of flat tax. Uh, but that would be a proportional tax rate structure. The second type of tax rate structure is a progressive tax rate structure, which uh, te- how this one works is it puts in, it imposes an increasing marginal tax rate as the tax base increases. So this would be our current, Uh, federal income tax code as your income increases the higher you go the higher the margin uh, in the past, uh, if memory serves, the, it t- was up as high as 90% in the past. So you got to a point where each additional dollar you earned, 90% of it went to taxes. Currently, the highest marginal bracket is 39 point something percent, 39, 40% basically, although there is an additional Medicare tax that can be imposed. We'll take that one apart at some point in the future. So you c- you know basically, you can be up to about 40% or 45% if we're counting in the Medicare tax uh, under that scenario on each additional dollar of income income. So you've got to decide at what rate, you know, at what point in time is the is the tax rate too high for me for it not to be worth the, the money to do the effort. But we currently have a progressive tax rate system. Now, the third kind is, of tax rate is what would be called a regressive tax rate structure. And so under a regressive tax rate structure, then now there is a decreasing marginal rate as the tax base increases. So as the tax base increases, the total taxes paid increases, but the marginal rate goes down. And so this is pretty uncommon. The best example I know of would be the Social Security tax. So if you earn $100,000 of income then, or $50,000 of income, then you would pay taxes on that let's let's assume employer and employee so let's just say 15.3%. However, if you earn $300,000 of income, the rate drops substantially because the ba- the base stops and so it's actually a regressive tax system. Uh, not common, so that's why it's even hard to to Apply it, but it's not. It's it, it's. This is a regressive tax system. Now, some people would say, if you look at it through the eyes of an effective tax rate, some people would say that there are taxes that are regressive because it's based upon the effective tax rate rather than the act the in the, uh, the marginal tax rate or than the uh, than the imposed um, like dollar tax rate. So, for example, something like a sales tax uh, would be uh, a proportional tax by definition. Because as the purchases increase, the rate becomes becomes constant. But if you were to compare that to income, and you were going to compare that a somebody with a higher income had a lower expenditures on on taxes that ha- impose on expenditures that impose sales taxes, then that would be a re- versus someone with a lower income that more of their money was exposed to things that that more of their money was exposed to things that that. Uh, uh, were subject to sales taxes, then the sales tax system would actually be a regressive tax rate when viewed in that light. (sighs) Hard to get through. (laughs) Hopefully that makes sense to you. And so the last thing um, is that there's really only three tax planning strategies, and everything comes down to this. It all comes down to timing, Shifting or conversion. And this is based upon uh, income taxes, is my my summaries. There are other tax strategies that can be applied to other things. So, for example, uh, sales tax uh, strategies for avoiding sales taxes would involve... Uh, different strategies for avoiding income taxes. So uh, my, you know, our strategies for avoiding sales taxes is that in the grocery store, certain types of foods are taxed, uh, or, or, or certain types of groceries are not taxed as sales taxes, and certain types of products are taxed as sales taxes. So if you look and you actually look, it's a little long, convoluted thing, but I read through the law one time because I was interested to figure out what qualifies as something that is groceries versus you know, packaged products. And we usually, most of our grocery Budget will usually buy things that are not subject to sales tax, uh, and you could do this intentionally. And it just has to do with the packaging, and this is state specific. But check your state, go look at your laws, and just try to see. Or in a simple example, would be something buying something new versus something used. So if you buy a uh, if you buy a brand new washing machine from I don't know, washing machines R Us, then you're gonna be in my state you're going to be paying sales taxes on that uh, but if you buy it on the used market on craigslist there's no sales taxes charged by the on the sale of that and i'm not sure if that would be subject to use taxes or not but nobody pays the used taxes so let's just ignore that for a moment uh, but that would be something that would uh, be a good example of sales tax planning strategies but with basically income tax planning strategies the three strategies that are always going to be employed is timing and so timing would be either deferring or or accelerating taxable income and tax deductions. So sometimes we want to push income off. Sometimes we want to bring income forward. Traditional IRAs are usually marketed based upon deferring income. And so you say the idea is that by deferring income from now through the future, then you will pay lower, you'll have a lower tax base now. But in the future when you retired, you're going to be earning less money. And so now your tax base is even lower. So therefore, it's better to recognize that income in the future. This is a timing strategy. Uh, And now the criticisms that's usually brought against this strategy strategy is you don't know what the tax rate is going to be. And so some people would say you're better off uh, using a Roth IRA because you're going to go ahead and incur the income now under your higher tax base at the current tax rate. But down the road, you won't have, the income, you won't have to recognize that income. So we're going to bring that income forward because we think that the tax rate is going to be higher down the road. If the tax base and the tax rate under Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs are identical, if I have $100,000 of income in now and $100,000 of income in retirement, and the tax rate is 15% now and the tax rate is 15% in retirement, financially they are identical from a tax perspective. But if I know what my base is going to be or what the rates are going to be, then we then we can kind of figure out which is better. Now, the problem is we don't usually know. We don't know what the tax base is going to be, and we don't know what the tax rate is going to be. And so you'll often find, if people believe that tax rates are going to go up, then you'll often find them saying, you know, buy, an, buy get a Roth IRA. Or if people say that the tax rates are going to go down, then we would know, get a traditional IRA. If we knew that our tax base is going to be higher in retirement because we're going to be receiving a, a inheritance income and trust income, maybe we would adjust that. Uh, so it's hard to know. We're basically guessing. But we're making maybe educated guesses, or we're going based upon internal biases and, and, and assumptions, or we're going on something else. So for example, a Roth IRA is much more flexible than a traditional IRA, and that may outweigh some of uh, maybe a potential tax uh, consequence. Or if we're in a state that we don't have a, a high uh, state income tax, let's say that we're in Florida, and I don't have to worry about state income taxes, this would be different than if I were living in California and I wanted to avoid the state income tax on that money, and then I would go ahead and pick it up when I moved to Florida to a state with no income taxes. So that would be an example of timing. Uh, So either bringing income forward or pushing income back or sometimes we bring in deductions forward or pushing deductions back, and this would be especially applicable in business when we're using a business entity. Whether do we dedu- deduct this now or deduct it later? But it's also applicable for individuals. The second basic technique is going to be income shifting. So can we shift income from a high-rate taxpayer to a low-rate taxpayer? So in this example, can we set up a business entity where if I want my children to e- benefit economically from my business, but I don't want to, I'm at the highest tax bracket? Can I set up a business entity where my children are partial owners of the business and therefore we can get them money at a lower bracket uh, and they're in a lower bracket so therefore there's less money going to the uh, less go- money going to the government now there are lots of rules there's kiddie tax rules we got to look out for there's passive activity rules uh, rules, and other things but this would be a good example of income shifting or we could have uh, the idea of conversion and so under conversion we would basically want to be converting our income from high to, uh, high to low Tax rate activities. So the example here would be uh, could I convert my high tax rate hobby into a low tax rate business? So if I'm in the business, I don't know, the the one that always comes as an example is racehorses. Uh, uh, Owning and, and buying racehorses could be a hobby. Or it could be a business, and racehorses, horses actually have their own line in the tax code about what's considered a business and what's considered a hobby. But if I could transfer some, one of my, uh, if I could transfer my fishing, uh, if I could transfer my fishing uh, expense, uh, my fishing hobby, where I go out every weekend and I go fishing, if I could turn that into a business, either I'm pro- going to be a professional fishing guide or I'm going to be a tournament fisherman, and this is how I'm going to earn my money, then I may be able to take that boat expense and convert it from a high Tax rate hobby where I pay for the $50,000 or $100,000 boat with post tax dollars and to a deductible expense where I can now use the business tax code and, and, and have it be an expend and a, a qualified business expense. So lots of rules governing all of these things, but conceptually all tax planning is going to come down to either a timing strategy, an income shifting strategy, or some kind of conversion strategy. Now, in the future, we're going to be going through a lot more of this information in the future, and there's going to be substantial uh, substantial development that we're going to do as time goes on of these concepts. But hopefully this sets the foundation for teaching through some of these ideas. Here's the key with tax planning. You don't know what's applicable to you until you actually look through each of the things that could potentially be applicable to you. Um, if you're not interested in voting, that idea is not going to work. But if you are interested in voting, that may work. In everything, there are lots and lots of rules that have to be followed. So what is considered a qualified business expense? What is considered not? These are major things, and everything has its own small little rules. But the laws exist. And if you just simply arrange your activities in such a way that you can abide within them, why not and there are so many things that could be done i think tax planning is probably the most powerful tool that we as financial planners can wield uh, or that you as a, you know whether you're a financial planner or whether you're just a layperson uh, looking at your own finances look at your tax rates but everything is based upon um, everything is based upon your actual situation, upon you tracking your actual numbers. So that's it for today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love to get some feedback on it. Uh, let me know if it was too deep, too fast, too slow. Uh, today's uh, show is episode 15, so the, the URL is com slash 15. Uh, RadicalPersonalFinance.com I uh, would love to hear from you And hopefully this will set a foundation For lots and lots of further planning going forward Subscribe on iTunes Tell a friend about the show if you like it Please give me some feedback I would love to hear uh, any feedback that you have And I hope that this show helps you to save some money uh, Disclaimer as always Financial planning is incredibly personal. And even though I'm trying to do a good job of giving you detailed, comprehensive information, please don't do something in your situation without consulting a professional. I have no idea how the California tax system works. I've never worked there. I don't have any clients there. I've got a basic understanding of it, but it's very different than in Florida. So don't take anything that I say with Florida experience and try to apply it to another scenario. Uh, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Have an awesome day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Didn't know if I could do it, but I did. That's a wrap.